Welcome to Meet, Act, and Part, a Masonic podcast hosted by Midnight Freemasons, Greg Knott, Darren Larners, Todd Friesen, and Bill Hosler. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Meet, Act, and Part, and welcome to episode 44. So we've got a special guest tonight, but as we always do, let us introduce ourselves first. I am one of your co-hosts, Greg Nunn. And I'm Bill Hostler. And I'm Darren Laners. So we're with a very special guest tonight across the ocean from us. And brother Chris Earnshaw, who is joining us. And we're just probably going to be on all kinds of topics tonight. I didn't know Chris until recently via email. He reached out to us and I was glad that he did. And, uh, just all kinds of interesting things we can talk about. But, uh, brother Chris, you're in Japan. And whereas it's our evening here in the Midwest, it's about, uh, late morning in Japan where as we record this anyway. And so Correct. what I'd ask you to do is just, uh, if you don't mind, introduce yourself and tell us uh, a little bit about your Freemasonry. And then, of course, we'll, we'll dig real deep into it as we go through. Okay. Thank you. Yes. So I've been a Mason now for 35 or 36 years. In Japan, we have a single Grand Lodge, but we have uh, lodges from other constitutions here. And I'm a member of an English, Japanese, Scottish and Massachusetts Lodge in Japan. So I'm, I'm quite active. I'm also in the Scottish Rite and York Rite. That's about it, Masonically. <laughs> so are you, did you grow up in Japan? How did you end up in Japan to begin with? We'll talk a little bit about that. Yes. So as you can tell from my accent, I'm British. I left England when I was 20 to come to Japan. The reason being was when I was 20, that was, uh, in the mid-70s, 1970s, and there was a lot of unrest in England concerning the economy, uh, Thatcherism and nationalization of industries and things like this. And uh, one of the issues was whether Japan was dumping cars in England. And at the time, I was studying economics at high school, and I thought that people didn't really understand the situation correctly. I didn't think Japan was dumping cars in so much as they were able to make cars much cheaper and more efficiently than British uh, industries could, and therefore they could sell them cheaper overseas. And it got me interested in understanding uh, Japan and Japanese, and so I decided to come to Japan to study Japanese, and for one year, in England, we have something called a gap year, which is uh, after high school, universities, uh, once you've been accepted, offer you one year off to um, kind of get high school out of your system, go on a holiday, go hitchhiking something, or uh, do some volunteering somewhere, and then start university. So for my gap year, I decided to come to Japan, study uh, the language, get to know the culture. And then when I went back to England, I would do Japanese and economics. But what actually happened is uh, I just got so enamored with the country. I stayed here and I've now been here more than four, something like 45 years. 
that's uh interesting. You know, I think it's <laughs> that gap that gap here. I think I might have had more than one of them. I don't know about the rest of you, but uh if not, I certainly would have benefited after high school. You know, it's of course in the States there's the pressure to go right to college and, you know, yes. not so much do that. And it's funny, I think so many kids would benefit by getting it getting it out of their system, so to speak, and have that year of exploratory to figure out what you want to do. And it that sounds, you know, obviously that's led to your path really straight door to us tonight, as you, yes. you know, explained. So, you know, we'll get into Freemasonry, but I certainly remember in the 70s growing up, and I'm sure Bill and Darren too, about, same about the, the automobiles and, you know, of course, General Motors and Ford and Chrysler are big three here in the U.S. And, and then I remember my parents talking about, you know, at least the perceived threat of, of, you know, of not only Japanese imports, but from other places as well coming to the States and, and affecting us. And so it's, it's, it's just so interesting how something like that and, you know, 50 years ago, you know, really shaped your decisions to, you know, not only go study about it, but to, as you said, become enamored with the Japanese culture and, and stay and, and really live there and learn uh, so much more. I guess my first question that I'll, we, we rotate our questions, of course, as we go here. Freemasonry. How did it catch your attention? You said 35 years. What, uh, what got you, uh, interested in, in becoming uh, a member? Uh, yes, basically my family, all Masons on both sides of my family. And I think though they didn't really talk about it uh, at home, and even if they did, I wouldn't have understood it, but it had quite an impact on our family, I think. There was one one incident uh, when I was about, must have been about 18, 17 or 18, my grandfather, uh, who was a of the Master Mason, he was ill at home, and the uh, Speaker of the House of Commons came to our house. Well, Speaker House of Commons, the equivalent, I'm not quite sure, maybe Nancy Pelosi or someone like that, suddenly appears on your doorstep uh, asking to, inquiring about my grandfather's health. And I was so surprised. And that image remained with me for a long time that, you know, somebody of his standing would come to see my grandfather. I didn't know the person's name, but I'd seen him on television, so I knew that much. And then, you know, I I really realized that, you know, looking after each other is a central tenet of masonry, and that really inspired me. Let me um, pass to Darren. I don't, there are just so many things, Chris, we could go down tonight and down those, <laughs> uh, those various tracks. Let, let me let Darren pick one of those avenues and we'll start exploring. Uh, brother Chris, it's my understanding that your specialty or, or your current research is regarding Chinese Taoism and then how it potentially is an origin for modern speculative Freemasonry. So we're just going to dive right into the, the deep stuff right now. <laughs> why don't you, right. uh, why don't you just kind of, uh, let rip with, uh, what you've what kind of led you to this path of research and what you've discovered and, and we'll go from there. Fine. Fine. So when I was made a must, I think I have to backtrack slightly because in England we, uh, used to have something called a classical education, which is where students would have to study either Latin or Greek at school. And at my school, uh, we all studied Latin. And so I was fairly familiar with a lot of the uh, mythology and the stories, Roman stories and Greek stories, because that's part of the education. Unfortunately, modern 
uh, students in England don't have this opportunity to study the classics. So when I became a master mason, one of the first things that came out to me was in the third degree where it says that our ancient brother Pythagoras uh, called out Eureka on discovering something. And I know it isn't Pythagoras that's called out Eureka, it's Archimedes. And I wondered why in the 1700s, people who all had classical educations would leave something in the ritual that was so wrong. And I wondered, you know, <laughs> it really it really intrigued me. Was it wrong for a reason? Was it like a hint or something? Or was there some sort of code or hidden teaching about this? Because it's, you know, it's Archimedes discovered uh, the displacement of water and how to measure irregular objects. And that's why he, he exclaimed Eureka. So I started looking into this and uh, other things started popping up. Uh, for example, the phrase we say Freemasonry is a peculiar system of morality. What's peculiar about it? You know, well, peculiar has two meanings. One is unique, and another one means eccentric or strange. So in the unique sense of peculiar, uh, Freemasonry's morality teachings are not unique at all. They're exactly the same as Christianity. So that's not true. And then what about eccentric? Well, there's nothing eccentric about Masonic moral teaching. So what is it actually saying? Is it really a peculiar system of morality? And the second point was that early Masons tended to be slightly elite. They they were looking to uh, bring in members of the aristocracy and gentry into Freemasonry. And at the time, there was a, a kind of prejudice against the Scots and Irish in, in London particularly, but also throughout England because of the law that was introduced, uh, in the late seven, uh, 1680s, but also because they were Catholics. And England was a Protestant country. And this was an extremely important point that people tend to forget. So therefore the Scots and Irish set up their own Grand Lodge, the Grand Lodge of the Ancients, and they became kind of competitive with the Grand Lodge of the Moderns, who were the speculative Masons, who later became the Grand Lodge of England. And so these, the Moderns, tended to attract the aristocracy. Well, are you going to teach the aristocracy a system of morality? I think the aristocracy would be affronted by the idea that they needed teachings in morality. You know, these are people fairly high position, they've had good educations, all had private educations, and now you want to teach me about morality? No, I think there's something else to that phrase, a peculiar system of morality. So anyway, to put that aside. So when I uh, came to Japan, I was 20, I got a job and I decided to study uh, university uh, as an external student. So in those days, we didn't have the internet. We sent correspondence, letters to and from university with our homework and uh, all the other things that we had to do. And uh, this for me worked very well because I was able to pay the work and pay the university fees, so I, I had no debt at all. And in fact, it was extremely cheap to be an external student. And uh, I studied uh, uh, Japanese and Chinese at university. And one of my specialties, well, it, it, you had some, I think, five specialties that you had to take. And one was the uh, economic system of the Tokugawa era. I remember that very well. Another one in Chinese philosophy was the study of Mencius, the Chinese philosopher. And I was very attracted to Mencius's thinking. Of course, Mencius 
Uh, he died somewhere in about 300 BC. So we're talking about a very old teaching of philosophy. But even though the I am his book is extremely old, the teachings to me seem to be very modern and very very interesting. So I even after leaving university, I was very uh, I kept on reading Mencius. My book has fallen apart. I've had to buy a new one, and so. About four years ago, I was invited to Taiwan to uh, study, uh, to at attend the kind of uh, conference on Mencius and Chinese philosophy, which included Taoism. And the uh, conference was at a Taoist temple, and I was offered the opportunity to be initiated in Taoism. Uh, Taoism is very different from what we think of as religion, because uh, it is syncretic. So they don't mind Buddhists joining Taoists or Christians being Taoists. You can be both at the same time, uh, which is rather unusual by Western thinking. And uh, they also don't see themselves as a, a religion, but more as a way of life, um, a way of how to act in life and uh, how to treat each other. Anyway, so... I went through the initiation, and what I immediately recognized was it's the same as the first degree initiation in Freemasonry. And I, I was completely bowled over. I was kind of gobsmacked. <laughs> just by, my jaw was open. Just every element seemed to be the same. For example, they have uh, three candles on their altar. They bring the light from the east to the candidate. They have three senior officers, and the se most senior officer is known as the light transmitting officer. The, the, and there's so many other things. This really, really surprised me. And so coming back to uh, Tokyo, I had to look into this. I just did, did Freemasonry get its ideas from Taoism, or is it the other way around? Did the Taoists learn from the Freemasons? Well, it didn't take very long to find out that Taoism has a history of over 2,000 years, uh, probably nearly 2,400 years. And so it wasn't the Taoist learning from Freemasons, that's for sure. But then how did the Freemasons learn from the Taoist is, is the question. And that's what I spent three, four years studying. And I culminated by writing a set of four books called uh, Spiritual Freemasonry, which explains each degree and its position in 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 this in teaching uh, Taoist to Taoism to the British Masons, brother Chris, do you do you think that that maybe I'm just going to put on my uh, my thinking cap here? It, is it possible that like these ideas are so ancient and so old that they come from potentially? you know, one of the older mystery religions, the Egyptians, and as the Egyptians traveled, maybe they spread some of these ideas to the East, or do you think maybe it's the other way around as some of the Eastern philosophies were spread by travelers from the East to the West, these ideas were adopted? Yes, so that's the first thing I started thinking about was how these ideas could have come to England. So what I found was... Starting in the 1660s, there was a lot of interest in China in England at the time. Uh, there, there were missionaries from uh, Catholic missionaries from uh, France, the Netherlands, and Spain going to um, Japan uh, to China, and 
They uh, translated Chinese books into Latin and then brought them back to Europe. And so the Royal Society that was established in 1660 started looking at Chinese language to see if it was a universal language, a single language that existed before the Bible that everybody spoke. And so it was just a, a lingua franca, as you would say. Another area was that from the 1660s, uh, tea became very popular in, in England. Before that, they had chocolate and coffee, and now tea was starting to be imported by the importers. Yes, And besides tea, we got uh, silk for the first time, became very popular and affordable as well. And um, furniture was coming over. And with tea, previous to that, we used to drink um, uh, mainly beer in England. Uh, it was people drink beer all day long, uh, even for breakfast. And they used to thin it down for children. It was called small beer, where they, they water it down and, and reduce the alcohol content. So they were drinking out of earthenware mugs. And the tea uh, to drink the tea, they also imported Chinese tea, uh, sorry, uh, Chinaware, teacups and things like teapots. And the, uh, the aristocracy started collecting these and it became a real fad, particularly because uh, Queen Anne was a very dedicated collector of Chinaware. And when the king and queen does something, then the aristocracy copy. And when the aristocracy does something, then everybody else kind of tries to copy. It's just like modern days when you have influencers or celebrities doing something, then everybody else copies. And it's the same in the, in the 1700s. Following this, what we saw was a move in architecture in England. So many of the aristocracy started introducing Chinese decorations into their houses. Some of them had Chinese gardens built. Uh, other people had tea houses or some of the, the rooms in the houses had Chinese wallpaper. Then in London, in the Royal Gardens at Kew, we built a, uh, the king, the queen ordered that a pagoda be built. And it's still there. 300 years later, this wooden pagoda is still standing there. At the time, the, uh, this is, we're talking about now the late 1760s. The Prince Regent, Prince of Wales, he was a uh, son of King George III. King George III had a, a serious neurological disease, and yeah, later in his reign, he started to lose his mind. There have been films made about this. And so the, later, the son took position as Prince Regent, the Regent meaning he was standing in for the King. And then when the King died, Prince Regent became uh, George IV in 1820. But until then, the Prince Regent was just a playboy. And uh, he spent a lot of money uh, building uh, his royal residence in London, which is Carlton Palace. And he had that decorated in Chinese style. And then in the south of England at Brighton, he had the uh, Royal Pavilion built. The uh, Royal Pavilion is a really a beautiful building, very un strange in an English countryside. It's built in a kind of Gothic uh, Indian style on the outside with these onion domes and lattice work and things. But inside, it's mainly Chinese. So what was happening was that so many things were being imported from China. It became not just in England, it became a European-wide phenomenon. And one of the things is that Furniture designs were also changed to incorporate Chinese motifs, and this is called chinoiserie. Chinoiserie was very popular, particularly in France, but all over Europe. 
rich people were building Chinese-style houses, even in Germany and France, they still exist. In Russia, they built Tsarina, I forget her name, Catherine first. Yes, Tsarina. She built a whole town on a Chinese style with Chinese roofs and a, a copy of the Chinese pagoda. So Chinese things were very, very popular at this time. A second thing was that I mentioned earlier the bification of uh, modern uh, speculative masons and the Grand Lodge of the Ancients. Well, the Grand Lodge of the Ancients were copying uh, the first three degrees, but they introduced a fourth degree, the Royal Arch. And this was kind of their selling point because the speculative masons only had three degrees and the ancients were teaching a fourth degree. They started teaching this. Uh, it's hard to pinpoint it exactly, but it would have to be about 1740, something like 15 years after the third degree was introduced in, in England. So from here, the Scots wanted their own and they, the Irish wanted their own degrees. So the uh, Royal Arch was seen as being a kind of Irish de degree. And the Scots had their uh, Mark Master degree, and they really wanted to incorporate this into the Royal, uh, sorry, into the Lodge of the Ancients. So then they introduced the Mark Master degree. And then the Irish introduced an Irish Master degree. And all these degrees started proliferating. And this is actually the start of Scottish Rite, because these degrees then went to uh, France. They were taken there by either by Jacobites or Irish uh, armies that was, were placed in France to help with the, uh, um, the the wars that were happening in Europe at the time. And being Catholic, then they went to help the Catholic King uh, Louis the Fourteenth. So when they went, they took also took with them their rituals and ideas, and also some of the senior members of the Royal Arch of the uh, sorry the Royal. The, the Lodge of the Ancients, they also went to um, France to open lodges. And so the, they were hoping to set up their system of Freemasonry in France. Uh, it's a very complicated situation because the French also had their own system of, of lodges. But anyway, I'm going a little bit too far. So what happened then was that K King George, when he became King, uh, he sent a delegation to uh, China that was rebutted because uh, <laughs> for diplomatic reasons. And then the Opium Wars started, uh, something like 1830. And the Opium Wars were, were started because England was growing opium in India and selling it to the Chinese in exchange for silver and also uh, tea and chinaware, which they brought back to um, England. Uh, they reinvested in England. They put more money into op growing opium. So it's a triangular trade between England, India, and China. And the emperor did not appreciate the British, I don't know, <laughs> doping down his populations. There was a lot of issues with people not being able to work because they were, they were stoned all day long in China. And so also the money was leaving China, which was also not appreciated by the emperor. And then the Opium Wars started, trade with China stopped. And then what happened was, just at the same time, uh, Champonillon uh, translated the Rosetta Stone that had been found during the Napoleon, Napoleonic campaigns in Egypt. Suddenly, trade with China stopped, and then there was interest in Egypt. And what we call e Egyptomania started. And with Egyptomania starting, Freemasons 
in the 1820s and 1840s were looking back 100 years and thinking, ah, did Freemasonry start in Egypt? And therefore, this idea of an, an Egyptian and also a gypsy origin for Freemasonry started. Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, going back to our American grade school days, and I think Bill and I certainly were about the same age, probably had the same lessons. It seemed to be all about the tea here also. I mean, you know, again, now the States. Yes. <laughs> the Boston but it's, tea it's, it, In many ways, you were describing all that. I'm thinking, you know, in present day, it's like not much has changed in, in some ways. You know, you talked about the social media influencers and back, you know, 400 years ago. Plus, it was those influencers that were people trying to emulate or, you know, moving housing styles back to Europe and, and this, that, and the other. It's so many ways, it's like we don't change as humans. And, you know, as you were constructing that path back from, you know, the Far East to Europe, you see that direct line. And so I guess my question, and I'd like Bill to maybe weigh in on this also, you know, we, we have the, you know, the, the lore of, you know, we don't know where the, the Freemasonry rituals come from, at least that's the, you know, as you come through the Grand Lodge of England and all those in the States, because we say they're ancient and we don't know where, if they came out of the stonecutter guilds and, and those kind of things. And from your timeline, to, uh, it really is more recent than it was talking about some of those ancient, you know, stonecutters from, you know, 1200, 1300s or whatever that evolved into the speculative craft that we know today. Have you looked at any of that? And, and you know, yes. have, Bill can ask some follow-up questions on it, but I was wondering, where does that timeline start to, to intersect? Yes, so to do with um, stone cutters, uh, I believe what happened was that uh, the first three grandmasters, who were uh, Anthony Sayer, George Payne, and John de Sagulier, they decided to use the operative Freemason structure to incorporate some Taoist teachings. The reason being is because they would, they wanted to attract the aristocracy into their, their new organization. Uh, the operative Freemasons, I believe, are based on, uh, stonemasons guilds. And the Stonemason Guild probably started about the 1200s, 1300s, uh, basically to protect people's jobs and also to enforce standards in the industry so that prices were set. And most of the uh, guilds, for example, people who were working with leather, there were saddle makers, there were arrow makers, there were even uh, fletchers, people who put the feathers on arrows. <laughs> You'd have thought that was a single job, but actually it was two people, two different guilds. And people working with gold, and there were probably over a hundred, hundred and fifty of these guilds, and they had to get a warrant from the local authorities to work, and they decided the the prices, and this was set by the local community. One thing is that we didn't have inflation in those days, so for two hundred years prices would never have changed, and people's lives they could they knew what. To expect in their life, you know, if you were, if you had this job, you would earn this money, and then you'd be able to afford something. There was no worries about prices going up and uh, loss of work. So one of the things that's uh, unique about the guild system is that they have patron saints, and uh, 
Of course, in those days, England was a Catholic country. It didn't become Protestant until 1534 uh, with King Henry VIII. So before that, we were a Catholic country. Uh, we had patron saints, and the guilds every year would have put on a holiday, a feast for the, the patron saint. It would incorporate sometimes a play, some sort of education or teaching about morals or biblical studies, and later sometimes the saints' lives and things like this. And it be ended up becoming quite an extravaganza. The Originally, they would do it in a church. It would be just an afternoon's event, and then people would go and get drunk. But later, it got larger so that they had touring, these touring companies from certain, like the Corpus Christi from, uh, I think it was uh, York, and they would tour the country. They'd go for like two weeks holding these plays on public, uh, public land, the, the green, as we call it, the commons. And uh, they would then be so large that various guilds would all get incorporated. It wouldn't be one guild. It'd be several or ten guilds. There may be up to 400 people. They all had to learn their lines. Um, uh, so it was quite a, a complicated system. But one of the things uh, is that the stonemasons were not a guild. They were a fraternity. And the reason they were a fraternity is because they had to travel. So guilds had a certain jurisdiction where they uh, could sell their, their wares, like uh, whatever, um, like say a saddle, leather saddle. If you wanted a leather saddle, you'd have to go to Norwich or someplace like that to get it. But the, the Masons would go overseas, they go to Scotland or around the place, building castles, abbeys, cathedrals, rich people's houses and things, all made of stone. And so they were called fraternities. So come the six, late 1600s, these fraternities were falling apart. They had initiation ceremonies, of course, and passwords and things, but people couldn't remember it. They weren't doing it properly. They kind of shortcut that you could bribe somebody to get into the fraternity. So the situation was not good. And then the three grandmasters, including de Sagulier, there was this Chinese boom going on. Uh, everybody wanted, was well, interested in Chinese. They had books about Chinese philosophy, including Taoism, uh, the I Ching and the Tao uh, Te Ching coming into uh, the country. Um, there was also, and this, I think this is key for me and my, my theory, in uh, 1687, a Chinese Mandarin from uh, Nanjing, the capital of southern China, came to England. Now, a Mandarin is a senior government official, and uh, we know his rank by the clothes he's wearing. It includes the hat, the type of materials were used, the decorations on his clothes. This was all uh, prescribed by law in China. You, you just couldn't wear anything. And so by looking at his clothes, we know his rank was quite high. His name was Shen Fuzhong. And so this Mandarin Shen uh, came to England. He... Uh, was introduced to uh, Thomas Hyde, who was the senior librarian at the Bodleian Library at the University of Oxford. 
Oxford had collected many Chinese uh, documents and books over time, but they couldn't read them. They didn't know whether to read from left to right or bottom. To, you know, just didn't know how to read the characters. So Shen translated many of these uh, documents for Thomas Hyde. Not only that, he taught him about uh, Taoism, the I Ching, and many other things. Uh, we know this because of letters between the two that still exist and are uh, at the British Museum. And so Thomas Hyde was then taught about Taoist things, and, and I think he was taught about this Taoist initiation. Therefore, then from Thomas Hyde, he was uh, friends with Robert Boyle, Isaac Newton. Both these people were alchemists. And um, alchemy was also very popular at the time in Oxford. So these alchemists, Isaac Newton, he worked with um, both George Payne and John de Sagoulier. So uh, Isaac Newton may be the link between Thomas Hyde and the first three grandmasters. Uh, John de Sagoulier was the uh, Isaac Newton's secretary at the Royal Society, and uh, Isaac Newton was also a director of the Mint, the Exchequer, uh, which is U.S. in America, the U.S. Treasury. Uh, he was a director, a senior director there, and uh, George Payne was uh, a head of another department inside the U.S. Treasury. And of course, London in those days was less than half a million people. So the U.S. the Treasury, the what we call the Exchequer, was probably only 20 people. So they would have known each other very well. So I see these teachings from stonemasons, uh, the structure of stonemasons, the idea of building and using tools and uh, using a Christian theme, you being connected to Taoism as a structure to put uh, these teachings on. One of the important, why they would have done that is because of, at the time, the government was very wary of secret societies. Uh, in England, the Catholics had many times tried to overthrow the government. And so if you look at the constitutions of Freemasons of 1723, it, it says in there, uh, after, I think the, the word is, I forget the exact wording, but it's something like after the resurrection of 1716. Well, that's only a year before the Grand Lodge, the Premier Grand Lodge was set up. So a year before there had been a resurrection, the Jacobites had come down from Scotland trying to take the throne of England, which was a Pot Protestant country, but we had um, previously had uh, Scot uh, Catholic kings. They were stopped at Preston, um, which is like 150 miles away from London. And so this has obviously caused a lot of consternation when Scotland tries to attack England. It was, you know, a big issue. So it was noted in the constitutions. But that wasn't the last time. There were three other attempts. Uh, the last one was in 1749. So Scot uh, the, the Catholics kept on trying to attack to take the throne of England. And so the government was very wary about people's setting up secret organizations. Like now, the FBI, you know, they look at anybody who may have uh, some sort of belief structure that is different from the, the, the accepted one of, of the U.S. government, 
and they, they monitor those people. Well, that's what was happening in England at the same time. And laws were brought in to outlaw uh, these secret organizations. But Freemasonry was seen to be a kind of guild. And because it was copying the, the original operative stonemasons and the third degree ritual was seen to be very similar to one of the, the, the plays that the operative masons put on. And it seemed to be a Christian theme with uh, King Solomon's temple and things like that. So therefore the government uh, let it alone. It was exempt from the law. Second reason, of course, is because by that time, when William Pitt brought in the idea of, of these secret societies, uh, uh, law against uh, societies that require a secret oath and things like this, at that time, we already had uh, royalty as the Grand Master. So these two things, having this Christian type of, of uh, ceremony, being based on operative masonry, and having a royal Grand Master allowed Freemasonry to be exempt from the law. Earlier today, I watched your video explaining about the Taoists and the popularity amongst the aristocracy and how it could have been worked into it. And I had kind of an aha moment when I read and when I heard that. And it made a lot of sense because, of course, you know, they are influencers and everyone, even today, everyone wants to know everything about the royal family and the, the British aristocracy. So it totally makes sense to me. And I kind of keep quiet about it because I know it's not an accepted process that a lot of people want to believe that Freemasonry started back either in the caveman times or with Egypt or, you know, what was brought here by Adam, no matter however you wanted to do it. But I've never really thought it was that age. And this kind, and when you said that to me, it, it kind of piqued my interest that this probably was something along the line that could have been a Taoist teaching that was well, converted, let's say, to something that would be a little more palatable for an Englishman, especially an Englishman in the gentry. And but the one question I was going I was thinking when I was watching this is where was you made a Mason? Was it in Great Britain or was it in Japan? I was made a Mason uh, in Kobe in an English lodge. Okay, that's why I was wondering, because I thought to myself, it's like, so when you say that compared, when this Taoist compares to the EA degree, was that um, emulation degree or was it Duncan or what What were you referring to? Uh, referring to Webb. So throughout my books, I use Duncan's ritual because it's accessible to everybody free online. And then okay. they, can, they can check my quotations to see if they agree. Okay, I was just kind of curious because I knew the Grand Lodge of Japan, I think they used kind of a Preston, like we do here in the States, the Preston Web type of ritual, I believe, from what I understand. Yes. But so I thought, well, I wonder which one. And I, you know, I mean, there are, they're all kind of same, but they're all kind of different. But I thought, well, I was just kind of curious as, you know, what the, which one was the closest to this. Yes. But, you know, it's earlier when you were saying, that the Taoists have the belief that you can be like a Christian and a Taoist and that, that it's not so much a religion as it is a way of life and how it's just, I thought, you know, that sounds awfully familiar to something that we <laughs> tend to say. And I thought, you know, that's just kind of me just kind of seals the deal that that really does kind of make it just totally make total sense to me. And yeah. I, you know, if it's not, it's very close and it just really makes a lot of sense to me. Yes. And there's another point that I thought to, I would, because there's so many aspects to this, but 
the Grand Lodge of the Ancients, and I mentioned that they were proliferating new degrees, whereas the Grand Lodge of England only had three degrees, and they didn't think it was necessary. So obviously they thought that that was the teaching, there was no more. And it fits extremely well with Taoist teachings, the three degrees. But the Grand Lodge of the Ancients, they introduced the Scots Masters and the Irish Masters. Both these degrees have Chinese words in the degrees. If you go and check the original degrees, they use them as both instructions, uh, the Chinese word to kneel, to stand up. Also, one of the ch uh, passwords is a Chinese word. That's how far China had actually infiltrated Freemasonry in the Grand Lodge of the Ancients. And I think the reason, again, for that is because they knew what was happening in the Grand Lodge of the Moderns, and they wanted to, uh, to attract a better quality of member. The problem with the Grand Lodge of the Ancients is that all the members tend to be working-class people. Some of them were not very well educated, and so there was this, this class structure between the two lodges. And so when the two lodges joined in 1813 and became the United Grand Lodge of England, there was some friction there. And it wasn't a simple thing at all because the moderns were looking down on the ancients, definitely. You know, another thing I'm wondering, and this is, I know, just pure speculation, was I wonder why they did convert it to more of a Christian theme versus, it seems to me that it would have been more mystical if they would have went with the Chinese theory, yes. you know, instead of trying to make a King Solomon's temple, but yeah. maybe they would have thought that was more uh, blasphemy or something like that. Because if you yeah. think about it in a hundred, you know, go flash forward a hundred years to the start of the Shriners, they actually, their story that they concocted was that they were traveling through, that they got their, their ritual from the mystics of the East and the, like the Middle East. You know, so it, it just, in a way, it's kind of funny how that, you know, was more, would have been more accepting a hundred years later if they would have taken it from the, the mystics of Asia and China. But I guess it, maybe it was just that that would have been just too considered, you know, anti-Christian and heretic yeah. or something like that. Yes, I think you're right. I think the, the issue was that they had to be seen to be Christian and they had a, that's why they had a Bible open on the, on, on the altar. And they were just carrying on the tradition of the operative Masons who were exactly the same. They, they had these, uh, they were a Christian organization. They had initiation ceremonies. They had apprenticeships and they also put on this mystical play, uh, every year. And so Freemasonry looked exactly the same as operative Masons that have been going for 500 years by that time. So yes, I think it was important to be seen as Christian. Uh, they didn't want to be seen as subversive to the government. Of course, we have to remember at the time, the Inquisition was also very active in Europe, not just in Europe, but in England as well. And the Inquisition wanted to know what Freemasons were doing. So you had the Inquisition and the Jacobites, you know, who were very anti-Protestants. They would want to know what's happening. And that's why I believe the Tyler has a drawn sword outside the door. because there were real threats to Freemasonry in the early days. You know, now we think we don't think of a threat, but in those days there were real threats to people's lives by meeting uh, as Freemasons. You know, and off topic, that's one of the things that I find kind of sad is 
of all the people who were persecuted and had to do this and risk their lives to, and they still attended and they still practice Freemasonry where we can't get our guys off the duff and go out of their, go out in their car and drive a mile or two to attend lodge, you know, just because, it, you know, they just, well, I just don't feel like getting on, you know, East Enders is on this tonight. I would have to hold Salem watch that, you know. <laughs> right, right. And that, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book because many Freemasons tend to be a little bit disillusioned. You know, once you've been a master Mason for five years, you're doing the same thing every month, you know, and they say, well, where's the, where's the spiritual teaching? Where's the mysticism, you know? And some people find it boring. And I think if you reevaluate and look at it from a different point of view, and for example, I, I'm looking at my book here, uh, Initiation by Light. I give 16 correspondences between Taoism and Freemasonry. And also the lodge itself is just like a Taoist temple. But, you know, we, we kind of accepted the, the Victorian teachings of Albert Pike and people like that. And we're not willing to dig any further, I think. And so one of, I hope to make th through my books, interest, uh, Freemasonry more interesting for young Masons who are a little bit disillusioned with the craft. And I just happened to watch another one of your videos today. Uh, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Has anybody answered the question on your the quiz or the riddle that you put in the back of your yes. one book? Right. Correctly? Nobody's answered it yet. And I'm thinking of upping the ante and offering a $300 prize to anybody who can find uh, the answer by December 2022. And I'm announcing it here for the first time. <laughs> well, money always tends to... <laughs> Motivate me to do things that I probably shouldn't do. <laughs> and so it should probably do too. But. <laughs> so the riddle is in, in the, my last book, Freemasonry Royal Arch. And it is to do with the, the hidden teaching in Freemasonry. But you have to think in Taoist terms to find out the answer. Well, I'll have to read it and I'll have to see, you know, I'm not the brightest, I'm not the brightest bulb in the tree, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, Bill, I always thought you were the great light in Freemasonry, so I don't know if you are. Well, that. I am. It's just that there's a lot of other um, fires that are a lot brighter than mine. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. You know, one thing, I'm, of course, we could spend days, I'm sure, digging Chris on, on all the stuff you've researched over your career, but. <laughs> I think to your point, you know, you've been in five years, not you, but any master mason, like you said, it's like, well, where's all the good stuff? This is just the same old, same old. How would somebody in any lodge in any, you know, town across the world bring in some of those topics you have, you know, because you have such a depth of understanding of how they connect together, how, you know, for a lodge education on, on a night, how do you bring a little bit of that in to, to spark the interest of those to say, oh, yeah, now I want to learn a little bit more, a little bit more. Where do you start? Exactly. So I've been asked this question before, and I'm now preparing a, a, a short book on lectures for the lodge. Each one's about five to seven minutes long with questions and answers. So you can d dive deeper into some of the subjects. Uh, for a si very simple one, is like the star in the middle of the lodge. What star is this? Is it Venus? <laughs> is it 
Pluto? Is it our sun? Is it the North Star? Is it the South Star? You know, what star? Sorry, what star is this? You know, well, there is an answer to it. And, but you, you want to have some discussion about it and see if you can find a, an answer. Uh, let's see what else is there. There are just so many things to look at. Uh, I raise them on the back of my books. I got all these, these questions. I start by questioning, with, you know, Freemasonry. Why people did this? Why did people spend, you know, like one thing we have to remember is in, in the, these days in the 1700s, people didn't receive salaries. Very, very few people were salaried. And one of the, the only people that got a, a regular salary were ch the clergy and soldiers. Uh, if you didn't pay the soldiers, you'd have a riot. So the king was paying them a salary. But people like teachers and doctors, they were paid piecemeal. So they were paid you know, by the month or for doing certain jobs. Like a funeral, you get paid. And so these people were always looking for ways to make money. And why would they spend eight years of their lives rewriting the rituals of a stonemason? You know, the, the gentry. De Saguliers is a doctor and a clergyman. George Payne is, is the, the director of, of uh, Exchequer. You know, he's a uh, gentry, is a type of junior nobility in England, below the aristocracy. Why would he involve himself in the day-to-day -day dealings of a, of a stonemason's fraternity? Why would he care if they had quarterly meetings or not? Well, the answer is because they wanted to use that structure, etc., etc. So these are the sort of questions, you know, I want to, I'm preparing a book on it, and I want to uh, help the Lodge bring in some new type of education that's not based on morality and uh, boring things like this, and geometry as well. Yeah, I understand that this, that the, free, the, the ritual is hidden in a kind of uh, cipher, what I call steganography. And so inside the cipher, you find all these answers. But we're just reading the surface story, and we don't get the whole story of Freemasonry. And like that's just, as I started, Eureka is one of these keys which leads you down a rabbit hole to look more about the whole story of Freemasonry. And then you discover the alchemy First thing is the second degree. You, you discover the alchemy in the second degree. And then you find the alchemy is also in the third degree. And then the spiritual awakening in the first degree. Anyway. Hmm. Yeah, just very fascinating. I'm going to pass it to Darren here in a second. He's, he's uh, you know, for our Grand Lodge, our area education officer. And, and Darren has done things like this, too, to bring some of those really sophisticated, complicated topics to a group of people, including myself, that really didn't have a lot of exposure to them and try to break them down in such a way that, frankly, you can leave that meeting with something to either explore farther or say, you know, boy, I can't wait till next month when we get a little bit more on it. So, you know, let me give it to Darren now. But uh, I just I think your book would be on target for that kind of an audience for, for me, you know, some guy that's I haven't read as near as much as you and Darren. I've spent, you know, my interests are, you know, a little bit there and a little bit other places. But 
Brother Chris, I was curious about Freemasonry and China, particularly right now. I know that Hong Kong was ceded by the British back to China. Was it around 2000? Was it the... Yes. Yeah. So I would have thought that at that point, there probably would have still been active Freemasonic lodges, at least in Hong Kong. But I would think with the uh, nature of the regime in China that Freemasonry, if it does exist, is underground. Do you know if it's still being practiced and just being very uh, practiced in a very clandestine, not clandestine in the way we think of clandestine, but a secretive way? Or is the Chinese government basically stopped it all out in China? Do you know about any of this? So I believe that the uh, the lodges in uh, Hong Kong, there's there's Scottish and English lodges there, and also in Macau. I think they are operating, but I'd say cautiously. So they're not doing big events, but they're still meeting. But apart from that, I'm not very sure. So the Grand Lodge of China is actually based in in uh, Taipei, Taiwan, and also the lodge I belong to, which is uh, the, the American lodge I belong to in Japan, is called Sinim Lodge, which is under the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts. Grand Lodge of Massachusetts doesn't have numbers for their lodges, so it's just Sinim Lodge. Uh, that was originally in Shanghai, and during the Second World War, it had to move fairly quickly <laughs> and uh, came to Tokyo. So perhaps something similar will happen to the, the the lodges in Hong Kong and Macau. Time will tell. Chris, I was thinking, you know, you're the past grand historian for the Grand Lodge of Japan. I've seen photos of the lodge room in the in the Grand Lodge of Japan, and it's gorgeous. I know everyone probably seen them. And it might be one of those bucket list items. I'd love to go to the Ted Lodge there, obviously. But can you kind of give us a kind of a well, kind of a thumbnail version of the history of the Grand Lodge of Japan. I think you may know a little bit about it, considering you're the past Grand Historian of the of the group. The Grand Historian's role is basically, in, in our Grand Lodge, is to record the activities of the Grand Master during the year. And we don't really delve about in old history. So the Grand Lodge of Japan was set up when some Philippine lodges based in uh, Japan after the war decided to set up their own Grand Lodge. And the Grand Lodge of the Philippines itself is based on the Grand Lodge of California. So we tend to copy the Grand Lodge of California ritual via the Philippines. Uh, These lodges then petitioned the Grand Lodge of the Philippines. I mean, they're so far away. We're thousands of miles away from the Philippines. Then um, we, we in, I think it was 1958, we became a Grand Lodge. Uh, after the Second World War, General MacArthur helped us to obtain some land uh, in the center of Tokyo. It had previously been the, uh, what's known as the Sikosha. Sikosha is the uh, Japanese Imperial Naval Officers Club. And uh, they had a restaurant there and meeting rooms. And one of the meeting rooms was used to plan the attack on Pearl Harbor during the Second World War. When we acquired the property after the Second World War, uh, we demolished the building, 
but we uh, re we we saved the structure of that meeting room, uh, the Pearl Harbor room, and in our Grand Lodge now we still we still have the Pearl Harbor room exactly as it was uh, in 1941. Is it <laughs> when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor? Yeah, and and uh, the other thing is that the land that we got. So in those days, we had a, a lodge, but at that time. Uh, there was no Grand Lodge of Japan uh, until the 50s. So the Grand Lodge of uh, Philippines and the Grand Lodge of England and Scotland, Massachusetts and um, Prince Hall all had lodges in Japan. So when the Grand Lodge of Japan was established, all these other lodges were accepted, and uh, but they were not allowed to proliferate. So that's the situation we have now. We have some 16 Japanese Grand Lodges, uh, sorry, <laughs> lodges under the Grand Lodge of Japan, as well as one English Lodge, two Scottish Lodges, I think it's uh, four Philippine Lodges. A second thing about the, the, which is unique in Japan is that after the war, they had the military occupation of Japan. And um, so many of our lodges are actually on military bases. And it's difficult for us to visit. Sometimes, uh, depending on how the situation, the political situation is in America, sometimes we're allowed to attend these lodges on base. But when security is very high, then we're not allowed on base. I was kind of given kind of a, a little bit of information about it. Just the other week, I was sent a message from one of the brethren in Japan, which surprised me because I knew you were coming on here tonight. And he he bought my book and he wanted to tell me how much he liked it. And okay. I said, well, make sure to stay tuned to me that part here in a couple of weeks because we're going to have your past historian. And he knew who I was talking about. So I guess you must be pretty well known there. But yeah, he I was just tickled he bought my book. So he's like one of three. And then... <laughs> <laughs> and that it went all the way to Japan, and then it, you know, so it's like, well, shoot, this is just real great day. He knew who you were. He bought my book. You know, this is a great evening. I'm going to go have a second beer just to celebrate. <laughs> you, <know>? <laughs> <laughs> you don't do yourself service. I'm sure your book's selling very well. Well, there's been it's been a few. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the Japanese Masonic community is not very large here. We have, as I said, if you add them all up together, probably 25 lodges in Japan, and the total memberships less than 2,000 brethren, and most, and probably 30% live overseas, particularly the military who do a uh, three to five year term in 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 Japan until they have a, ch a permanent change of station. Is that what they call it? PCS and they're still Mason, uh, Japanese Masons, but they're no longer in the country. Still, be interesting to visit there, though. Yes, yes, please come. <laughs> yeah, we're going to put that on our list of meet active part uh, <laughs> adventure trips. We're thinking about starting a new subsidiary just for, if nothing else, all of our imaginary trips that we talk about every time we we talk to a, a friend. Well, Greece, England, Hawaii, now Japan. Yeah, I know it. <laughs> I'm going to need to retire and just spend full time as a meat active part uh, tour host. So. <laughs> well, that's you know that uh, speaks to the universality of the uh, the of Freemasonry. It's yeah. that's what makes it wonderful. 
No, and I think that's true. And I mean, really, it, it ties back with what you really gave is sort of the some of that, you know, how how it came to uh, to England to begin with. And it is, it is that universality. And I think it's that's to me, that's one of the core themes, even if all these other things are weaved in with it. It's it's about humanity and how we interact with each other or should interact with each other. anyway. Yes. The opportunities we can have for these conversations and the sharing of ideas. But yet, we know, we come out of that uh, same same background. And it's, you know, arguably, if you know, if if we go with how you've explained and, and what you've researched, it's probably even older than we speculate in terms, maybe not as we know it today, but in terms of, of really uh, of its origins are even deeper and uh, and older than the stone gills that we talk about all the time. And so yes. to me, it's it's that timeless part of being a, a good human being that, that, that transcended literally probably thousands of years, not just hundreds. There, there was a quest in, in uh, England and in Europe to see if Chinese philosophy could be amalgamated with Christianity because uh, Chinese Taoist philosophy was seen to be a meritocracy. And uh, it seemed to be a, a, a great way for people to treat each other. And they felt that this was very similar to the, the teachings of Christ. And the Royal Society and people like Gottfried Leibniz in Germany, they were actually seeing if, if Christianity and Taoism could somehow be integrated. And perhaps the lodge was successful at that. Yeah, I, I think so. And we uh, get near the end of our time here, but it is just those recurring themes. And you know, if I was kind of to summarize even what I would consider this an introductory discussion, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is that opportunity to explore new things, new ideas, understand how they have transcended time from the ancient to the modern. And um, challenge each of us as individual Freemasons to go out and do a little bit of that research and see uh, how they pull together. So let me pass it over to Darren and Bill, see if they got any uh, final questions or comments for you, and uh, we'll wrap it up. Brother Chris, just first of all, I'd like to thank you again for coming on the program. And uh, I'm going to ask you to to go ahead and uh, talk about where uh, people can get your books and then also uh i know that you've got a youtube channel and also a, a podcast that you've established if you want to give that information out as well i'd appreciate it thank no. you thank you for the opportunity well my books are under the title spiritual freemasonry as a series i have one for each degree uh, initiation by light uh then spiritual alchemy quest for immortality and the final one is royal arch I also have on um, YouTube a channel called Spiritual Freemasonry. And recently I set up a podcast, uh, which is on Spotify, Anchor, lots of places. It's called Freemasonry in Seven Minutes or Less. Thank you. I just want to thank you for coming on and really giving us something to think about. I mean, <laughs> honestly, I would have never thought about, you know, the Chinese aspect of this. And it really gives you something to think about. And I may have to look into Taoism a little bit more because it really intrigued me from what everything I've you know listened to today and from what you've said. And I want to thank you for coming on. And I hope you come on and maybe get a little more in depth at a later time. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. And Chris, thank you for reaching out to me. It's uh, it's just 
that's been the most fun thing about when we started this podcast is, you know, we're joking about our people we've met all over the world, but literally we have. And I think that's just uh, not only speaks to the universality of Freemasonry, but frankly, living in this day and age when in technology, we can dial each other up literally on the Internet and, and have these conversations and you're a half a day ahead of us on, on the time zones. And it's just really it's amazing to what we can do today. So let me uh, thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, we'll put in our show notes the links to some of the things that you uh, talked about and uh, appreciate all of our listeners. And so we encourage you to go out and look at Chris's books, his website, his uh, YouTube channel, things, because I've been serving it here as well. And you'll learn a lot. And I think take those things back to your local lodge. And, and Chris will be out with a new book uh, somewhere shortly down the road that'll give you uh, a little bit of things that you can use some of the more in-depth things we talked about to take back in the lodge. So. Can uh, thank everybody for joining us, and uh, we hope all our listeners will join us again soon for another exciting episode of Meet, Act, and Part. Thank you for listening to Meet, Act, and Part. For more information about our show, visit our website at www.meetactandpart.com. While there, please consider supporting the show by sponsoring us on Patreon. Until we meet again, may we meet, act, and part.